Thanks for watching this video from Cherry Hills Church. During this series, we want to spend time with Jesus to learn from Jesus how to live the way of Jesus. Thanks for joining us today. Good morning. Happy Easter. From the Gospel of Mark, chapter 4, verses 35 through 41. That day, when evening came, he said to his disciples, Let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. A furious squall came up, and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up, rebuked the winds, and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. Then the wind died down, and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified and asked each other, Who is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. Who is this? That's the question I want to ask this morning with you. It's a question that has been asked for over two centuries now, and... People have all kinds of opinions about the answer to it. Who is this Jesus, right? No other figure in history has had more written about him than Jesus. No other religious leader has had more scrutiny than Jesus. Who is he really? Here's what other religions say about this question. The Mormons say that Jesus is not God. Before he lived on earth, he was actually Michael, the archangel. After dying on a stake, not a cross, he was resurrected as a spirit, but his body was destroyed. Jehovah's Witnesses believe Jesus is a separate God, lowercase God, from the big God. Elohim is what they call him. Jesus was created by a sexual union between Mary and Elohim. And his death on a cross definitely did not provide forgiveness for sin. Islam says that Jesus was not God or the Son of God, though he was a sinless worker of miracles and one of the most respected prophets of Allah. However, he was not crucified or resurrected. That was a myth that his disciples made up later. Hinduism teaches that Jesus is a great teacher, a guru, or an avatar. He is a son of God, as are others. His death does not atone for sins, and he definitely did not rise from the dead. The New Age movement and much of what Americans believe today says Jesus is not the one true God. He is not a savior, but he is a spiritual model, a spiritual teacher, a guru. He tapped into divine power somehow, some way, but he did not rise physically from the dead. He rose spiritually into another plane, which is something that you and I can do as well. Now, I find all of that really interesting, but I want to ask you a more personal question this morning. If you're using your notes with me, the question is, there are many opinions about Jesus, but who do I say he is? And by I, I don't mean me, I mean you. I mean, if someone were really to ask you, who is Jesus? Can you tell me a little bit about him? How would you answer that question? C.S. Lewis once said that despite what all these other religions claim, there are really only three options to answering that question based on what Jesus said about himself. Jesus was either a liar. In other words, he knew he wasn't really who he was claiming to be, and so he's the liar of the worst kind. Or he's a lunatic. He actually thought these things. Maybe he had some kind of a God complex or something like that. 
Or the third option is he is actually who he says he is. And this morning on this Easter Sunday, I want to walk through the passage of scripture that Jessica just read for us because I believe it can offer us three key insights into answering this question, who is this Jesus? So if you haven't already, I invite you, as we do every week here, to open up your Bible. If you brought it with you, turn it to the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 4, turn, starting in verse 35. If you don't have a Bible, we have plenty of Bibles underneath you, somewhere there in those seats. I'd love for you to grab one of those. You can find this story on page 815 of those black Bibles. In fact, if you do not own your own Bible, take that home with you as our gift to you. We would love for you to have a copy of God's Word. But we've been basically just walking through the Gospel of Mark together as a church. We love doing this. And we came to this text this morning, and I just thought, I want to teach this on Easter. So the first thing we learn about Jesus in this text, again, if you're following on your notes, is that Jesus was a human who experienced what we do. He was a human who experienced what we do. Where do I get this? Well, let's look at verse 35 together. It says, that day when evening came, he said to his disciples, let's go over to the other side. Now, just a little pause here. Have you ever had a really busy day? Like, I mean really busy. Were you ready to fall onto the couch and just go to sleep? Well, that's the day Jesus has had. We've been looking at his day for the last few weeks as we're working our way through Mark. And let's just remind ourselves a little bit about what's happened. Jesus woke up early in the morning, which he often did. He went up into a mountain and he began to pray. And then he called his 12 apostles to come and to follow him. After that, they walk back down into the mountain, down into a village where he begins to meet in this person's home. But there's other people at this home. There are some Pharisees and religious leaders who begin to confront Jesus about the claims that he's making about himself. In fact, they even go so far as to say he comes from Satan. He doesn't come from God. He comes from Satan. You see, they thought he was a liar, as I talked about, of the worst kind. Then it gets even worse. His mom and his brothers come to him and they think he's out of his mind. And so they try to kidnap him from this house. I mean, can you imagine this? Why? Because they think he's a lunatic. He's lost his mind. He's making these claims that can't possibly be true. And after all these things, Jesus is like, okay, we're out of here. He walks down to the Sea of Galilee where he's going to begin to teach people. But the crowds are so big. Crowds love Jesus for what he could do for them. He has to get into a boat and he begins to teach them. And they're all standing on the shore there. And he teaches them in parables. We've looked at these parables of the last couple of weeks. So that's his day so far. We pick up the text here in verse 36. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. In other words, it's time to go to the other side. Now, they're in this boat. It's in the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee is a real place, a historical place. It's a place I've been to. It exists. It rests 628 feet below sea level, and it's surrounded by these mountains and deep ravines. You can see a picture of it here. Beautiful, isn't it? And yet, it's also extremely dangerous. Because what happens at the Sea of Galilee is that when strong winds are coming by, these little ravines, these little mountains pick up the winds and they kind of funnel it down into the lake where it creates these terrible storms, these serious storms out of nowhere. And that's where we pick it up in verse 37. A furious squall came up and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. 
Now, in the Greek language in which the New Testament was written, the verb here says it's just repeatedly getting beaten, this boat. It's this little boat getting beaten. Uh, Rembrandt, uh, one of my favorite artists, actually painted a picture of this scene. Maybe you have seen this before. It was actually stolen uh, a number of years ago from a museum in Boston. There's a great documentary about that if you like documentaries. But this is the kind of thing that's happening. Literally, in the Greek language, the word used here is it's a seismos storm. Where do we get that, you think? What what English word comes from that? It's like an earthquake. It's like an earthquake hitting up against this boat. Now, you guys live in the Midwest. I grew up in Northern California. And I was in the Bay Area earthquake of 1989. And I was playing football. We were out on this field. And literally, I kid you not, the grass looked like waves from the ocean. People were falling down on this field. It was crazy. And that's the description of this storm. In addition to this, just a little context to put yourself in this story. When the Jewish people thought about the sea, when they thought about the ocean, that was a place where evil existed. We don't think about it like that today, but for them, that's where darkness was. What, that's where evil was. So add to this whole story, and you can understand why they're freaking out a little bit here. This is a giant storm, and they're in the middle of the sea, the place where darkness and evil exist. So what do they do? They go find Jesus. They're not as dumb as we make them out to be sometimes, right? That's a pretty smart choice. And here's what happens in verse 38. Can we read it together there on our notes? It says, Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? Jesus is in a boat in the middle of an earthquake storm, sleeping on a cushion. I find that almost more remarkable than the storm itself, don't you? Jesus, fast asleep in this chaos, this incredible thing that's happening. He's not pretending. Have you ever met somebody that can fall asleep anywhere? Yeah. I'm kind of jealous of those kind of people, to be honest with you. My father-in-law is one of these people. Like, literally, we can be playing games at their house. There's all this laughter and yelling, and you look over, and he's just out. He's out. As soon as 8.30 hits, my father-in-law is out, no matter what is taking place. Here's Jesus. He's out. And you may be asking, what's the point of this description of Jesus? Well, here's the point. If you're following on your notes, Jesus was totally and utterly exhausted. And he's not pretending here. He really is fully human, experiencing total, complete exhaustion, and he's asleep. Now, if that doesn't reveal his humanity enough right there, I want you to notice something else about the way this story is told. Think about it. Whenever you read a story about a famous hero or a legend or something, think about someone like Hercules. You never get the kind of details, the specifics, almost unnecessary details that you do in a story like this that Mark is telling. For example, it's not going to say that Hercules changed into a green toga before he fought the dragon. It's just going to say he fought the dragon. It's not going to say that. And so why are these specific details given to us in this story about what's taking place, about the time of day, about the fact that Jesus is sleeping, about the fact that he's sleeping on a cushion, which by the way, historians will tell you, they actually did carry cushions in these little boats for people who were not fishermen or seafarers, just somebody to be able to rest. They put them in the coxswain. That's the only, that's the only sea thing I know, right? Only boat thing I know. Tells us he fell asleep on it. 
No story about a myth or a legend or a hero is going to include these kinds of things. These details are only here for one reason. This story is a personal recollection from real people. This is an eyewitness account of these events. If Jesus was just a legend or just a myth that some people made up, which is what some people claim today, there's no way they would give these kind of unnecessary details. In other words, if you're following on your notes, the details of the story show this really happened historically. This is not a myth. Jesus is a real person. And you're like, why am I spending so much time on this? I get it because... The question of who Jesus really is, sometimes the Bible gets disregarded when it comes to this kind of argument. But I want to make a note to you. Mark wrote this gospel, even non-Christian historians agree, 40 years after Jesus lived. So in other words, there's still people alive that can confirm whether or not these things actually happen. I mean, we even read in this text, there were other boats that were out on the sea with him here. Mark's not going to tell these kind of stories. For example, also like, yeah, he fed 5,000 people. He's not going to tell these kind of stories if they weren't actually true. I mean, think about it. If I wrote a story about what happened in the state capitol April 17th, 40 years ago, that I saw a man flying around the capitol with a cape on. There would be people coming out of the woodwork saying, that is not true. I work downtown. We didn't see anything like that. Like, really, friends, if I really wanted to pull the wool over your eyes, I'd have to wait about 100 years till everybody who could have been there wouldn't be there anymore. But that's not the Bible. We know the date of the Gospel of Mark, 40 years after Jesus. There's still plenty of people around who could contradict the kind of events and things and teachings that Jesus had here, even his enemies, didn't deny his existence, his teachings, or even his miracles. Why? Because they were eyewitnesses to these things. They just tried to find another way of explaining them, right? For example, as we already saw, they accused him not being from God, but being from Satan. Friends, I'll put it this way. My whole point in this is we know, if you're following on your notes, we know Jesus was a real man based on historical evidence. He wasn't a myth. He wasn't a legend. He was a human being just like you, just like me. Jesus got tired. We see this. He wept at the death of his friend. He suffered physical torture. He got hungry. He got thirsty. He was one of us in every sense of the word. But that's not all this story says about who Jesus is, though that is where many people would like to stop. It continues in verse 39. Let's read that out loud on our notes there as well. It says, he got up rebuked the wind and said to the waves, quiet, be still. Then the wind died down and it was completely calm. Now again, a little more context. Again, if you're a fisherman on the Sea of Galilee, you're going to be used to storms. I mean, they come in, like I mentioned, from those funnels all the time. But for an experienced fisherman to be this freaked out, this must have been one heck of a storm, right? They think they're really about to die. And so they wake up Jesus. It's a big storm. They're fearing death. Jesus stands up and notice carefully, he rebukes two things. First of all, he rebukes the storm. Our scripture, our, our version of the Bible says, he says, quiet, be still. That's so weak, right? It's better than the old King James version, which said, peace, be still. Like such a pious view of Jesus. You want to know what the Greek really says? The best translation of this? Shut up and stay shut up. No joke. Now, do you see the power in this? 
There's no conjuring. There's no manipulation. It's not a magic trick. Jesus gets up. He lifts his little pinky finger of power and just speaks a word. And the sea goes calm. If you and I were reading this as Jewish people back when it was written, we would immediately make a connection from this story to the story of Jonah. You remember Jonah, the guy who was swallowed by the fish? Now, before that happened, do you know anything about Jonah? Jonah was a prophet called by God, and God actually called him to go to speak to the Israelites' enemies. And Jonah says, I want no part of that. I know that you're a gracious God. So he runs away in the complete opposite direction. He gets on a boat, and guess what? A big storm comes up. Where's Jonah? He's asleep. The sailors wake him up. They're freaking out. They're going to die. What do we do? What do we do? And Jonah says, the only thing that will calm this storm is if you throw me into the water. They don't want to do it. They're nice. But eventually the storm gets so bad they do. And this is what we read in Jonah chapter one, verse 15. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard and the raging sea grew calm. Does that sound familiar? That's not how storms usually work. I grew up by the ocean. Whenever a big storm would pass through Northern California, the sea did not grow calm. That is when the big waves came. That is when the real surfers came and showed up. Listen, when the storm cleared, the sea kept raging. But here, and in Jonah's story, it says the sea became calm like glass. Dead calm, instantly. It's like when you step outside after a big storm or after a tornado, right? There's this weird sense of eerie calm. That's the picture I get that Jesus has here. And the question I have for you is, who can, with just one word, calm creation itself? God. God spoke creation into existence. And yet here Jesus speaks and nature obeys him. So let's use some deduction skills here. I know it's Sunday. We don't want to think about school. Can you do some deduction? Listen, what does this say about who Jesus is? If you're following, Jesus reveals with one word, he is God over heaven and earth. This right here, friends, as you saw in the beginning, is where every other religion disagrees with Christianity. All throughout the New Testament, though, this historical book, written 40 years after Jesus, we're confronted again and again with this claim. There's just no way to talk about Jesus And come face to face with this claim. I am a fully human being, but I am also God in the flesh. People today will say, like Jehovah's Witnesses, where does Jesus claim to be God? Well, we have an example right here, right? It's not direct, but with one word, he calms the sea. We saw another example in our study in Mark, way back in Mark chapter 2. When Jesus saw their faith, these are some friends who dropped this paralyzed man down to him to heal him. He said to the paralyzed man, son, your sins are forgiven. Uh Uh-oh. Now, some of the teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Bingo. But they still miss it. The one that gets them in the most trouble is actually in John chapter 8, verse 58. He says, very truly, I tell you, before Abraham was born, I am. And again, as Gentiles, what are Gentiles? Anybody who's not Jewish, we don't get that. But a Jewish person would immediately recognize, oh, he's pointing back to Exodus 3 right here, where God reveals his name as Yahweh. I am who I am. Listen, the religious leaders get it. Look what the very next verse says. At this, they picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. I will say it again. Jesus is either a liar, a lunatic, or he really is 
God. And because he really is God, he can get up and utter one word, shut up, and it's over. Of course, the story doesn't end there. Notice, after he rebukes the storm, he rebukes his disciples. Verse 40, he said to his disciples, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? I think this is where the story applies to us today, and I'm going to come back to that in a second. But let's finish it up in verse 41. It says, after Jesus calmed the storm, the disciples were happy because they were safe. Oh, no, whoops, wrong version. It actually says they were terrified and asked each other, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Why are they terrified? This bothers me a little bit, right? This doesn't fit my neat little package of my picture of Jesus. They're terrified because they realize they're in the presence of a greater power, presence from another world, someone greater than the most powerful storm they've ever experienced. If you're following, the disciples know they're in the presence of a greater power, and they do what all of us would do and will one day do. When we come into the presence of God, they get on their knees, Matthew's gospel tells us, and they begin to worship him in reverence and awe. Do you view Jesus this way? Or do you put him in a little box that you can contain him or bring him out whenever you need him, whenever you're in trouble? Here's the picture I've had all week. You might think I'm a little deranged, but here's the picture. I think I'm, you guys know who that is? Yeah, the elf on the shelf. Maybe the worst invention of all time. (laughs) But I think that's what a lot of us do with Jesus. We bring him out at certain times of year, maybe when we're going through some hardship, maybe when we need him to intervene in our lives. We've got him on that shelf somewhere in our closet back there, just in case. We've got him contained somewhere. And we bring him out when we need him. That is not the reaction the disciples have. The Bible says dozens of times, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. What does that mean? It means, listen, if you really come into the presence of God, you really see him for who he is, you will get down on your knees and you will worship him. You will be in awe of him. That is another word for fear. God, Jesus cannot be controlled. He cannot be tucked away somewhere on a shelf when we want him. He is someone who deserves our worship. He is someone who deserves to be revered because he is God himself. The disciples experience the presence of God. They're terrified, more terrified than they were of the storm. So if you're following, they fall on their knees in reverent worship. Friends, when you really come to fully realize who Jesus is, that's the only thing you can do. Who is this? That even the wind and the waves obey him. He cannot be a good teacher, a moral leader, a guy I spend one Sunday a year getting dressed up for before Easter brunch. He is either a liar a lunatic, or he is who he says he is. And we must kneel before him and give our lives to him, not just put him on a shelf somewhere. And so in this story, we've seen fully human, fully God, worthy of worship of our lives. But there's one more thing I just want to point out about this particular story, and it relates back to the day we celebrate today, Easter. Jesus is also the Lord of the storm. And here's what I mean by that. If you're following on your notes, Jesus is the Lord in and over the storms of your life. I want you to hear that. This is good news. He's in the boat with you. I love the rhetorical question the disciples asked Jesus because it's a question we've all asked if we're honest. Don't you care that we are perishing? 
This is a cry for help, but it's kind of accusatory as well, wouldn't you think? Why are you letting this happen to us, Jesus? We thought you, we knew you. You ever been there? If you are a living, breathing human being, you have been there or you will one day be there. I've been there in the midst of the storms going, Jesus, why are you letting this happen? I thought you loved me. How could you let me be experiencing this kind of pain and suffering? Here's what the disciples are saying, right? Lord, we thought you were with us. We thought you loved us. We thought if you were in the boat, our lives would never experience storms. We thought now that I'm a follower of you, yeah, I might have some small problems. This is a big problem. This is a death kind of problem. This is life-threatening. We're sinking. Can't you see? Where are you? Who are you? Don't you care? And how does Jesus respond to them? They're there. Nope. That's how I would have liked them to respond. He rebukes them. He rebukes them. Now, I've been thinking about this all week. It bothers me. Because that's not what I want from Jesus. That's not the reaction I want from him when I'm in my storms. I know, though, that Jesus isn't an irritable person. Can we all agree on that? He's not a very irritable person. He's not an irritable person at all. He's the most grace-filled person ever to exist. So what's going on with his response here? What's the deeper message Jesus is getting across to his disciples here? Here's what I think's going on. He's addressing this faulty kind of faith that I know shows up in my life that says, I shouldn't have problems in my life if I follow Jesus. If Jesus really loved me, this kind of thing wouldn't happen But Jesus is challenging that kind of faith, which is really no faith at all. I put it this way, if you're on your notes, Jesus isn't a rabbit foot savior who promises no storms in life. He's not an elf on the shelf. Jesus says, I'm going to allow people I love to go through storms. But do you believe that even in those storms, I am working in your life? that I am in you, I am with you, I am for you, and ultimately I am over whatever storm that you are facing, and I have power even over that. There will be storms, but if you're falling on your notes, he does promise he is always in and over whatever we face. Jesus put it this way in John 16, 33, right before he is going to the cross. Can we read it together? He says, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. That's the promise of Jesus. That's the kind of faith he is looking for. If you find yourself in a storm right now, and who of us haven't felt we've been in a storm the last couple of years, remind yourself that he is in the storm with you. And that he is over the storm. And you can have peace. Second thing, though, I think that Jesus being the Lord of the storm means is the most important thing I can say to you today. And it ties back to what we celebrate here. When we ask those kind of questions, why are you allowing this to happen to me? Why isn't God stopping this? Where is God in the midst of this? Here's the truth. I can give you all kinds of great theological answers to that. But none of them None of them are as powerful as a personal answer, which is Jesus entered the storm himself for you. This is what separates Jesus from every other religion. He got into the storm. 
He got into the storm himself. He went to a cross where he was beaten and whipped and tortured and spat upon and ultimately killed. We remembered this event on Friday. And friends, I just got to tell you, that's just the physical pain Jesus went through. He went through tremendous emotional pain. He was separated for the first time ever from the Father. He endured pain like Jonah. He was thrown into the storm. But unlike Jonah, he did it willingly. He did it with you on his mind. He did it with me in his heart. He said, I'm entering into this storm. As the author of Hebrews says, it was for the joy set before him that Jesus endured the cross. Joy, yeah, joy, thinking about you being with him forever. Friends, there's only one storm that can really sink us if we're honest. It's the result of our sin. It's called death. We don't like to talk about it. Paul writes, the wages of sin is death. That's your destiny. That's my destiny. That is our end. That is the storm we all fear. And yet, here we have a Jesus, fully human, fully God, who got into the boat with us. He turned the proud, so to speak. He headed straight into the storm of eternal justice. He bowed his head. He cried out in anguish, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he breathed his last. And he did it so that he could take our place and forgive us of our sin. But I got to say something to you. That whole event, the whole cross was meaningless. Except for the fact that three days later, on the very first Easter Sunday, he rose from that grave. He looked at death straight in the eyes and he said, shut up and stay shut up. Friends, if you're following, what this means is that Jesus is the Lord over the greatest storm of all, death itself. And if he didn't abandon you and me in that ultimate storm, what makes you think he would ever abandon you in your little storms? In those infinitely smaller storms we're going to go through that we're going through right now. He was thrown into the storm for you and me, and this is why Easter is good news. It's why we celebrate Because he lives, we live both now and forever. Death has no victory over us. As Paul says, death, where is your sting? It's gone. If you're on your notes again, if there's no resurrection, there is no hope for us. The storm of death wins, but because Jesus Christ is risen, we now live in hope. We are hopeful people. Yes, the wages of sin is death, but you know what? That verse doesn't end there. The gift of God is eternal life. And all you have to do to receive that gift of eternal life is to exercise faith. And so I'm gonna just close this morning with the same question Jesus asked his disciples. Where is your faith? Where is it right now? Is your faith in your 401k? Is your faith in the fact that there's just gonna keep being medical advances and you're gonna live longer and longer and longer? That's not lasting faith. We're all going to get old and we're all going to enter the storm of death i just want to say we exercise faith every day you know that you exercise faith this morning when you drank that cup of coffee even though your wife could have poisoned you (laughs) she may have wanted to but you had faith there wasn't going to be poison in that coffee so you what acted you made an action You drank the coffee. You had faith when you came in this morning. You've probably never sat in the seat that you're sitting in right now, although I know some of you sit in the exact same seat every single Sunday. 
But you have faith that whoever made this chair, they made it with integrity. And so you did what? You acted. You made a decision. You committed yourself to sitting down in that chair. Friends, let's apply this now to Jesus. What does it mean to have faith like he asks? Here's how I would define it if you're on your notes. Faith simply means believing Jesus is Lord and committing our lives to him. Yes, there has to be some belief, some mental assent. Yeah, I believe he was human. I believe he was God. I believe all that stuff. But James says even the demons believe that. True faith is committed to that. True faith is taking an action on that. True faith is stepping out and saying, I commit my life to you now, fully. I want to follow you. Believing. You're not just a good teacher. You're not just a moral example. You're no longer going to be the elf on the shelf that I bring out whenever I need you. I believe you're my Lord and you're my King and I will follow you unconditionally with my whole heart. That's faith. So let me ask you the most important question of your life. Will I come to Jesus in faith and commit to him as Lord? Please hear me. This is what Easter is about. It is an invitation from the God who was a man who offered his life for you on a cross, then rose again from the dead so that you could look death in the face and say, shut up and stay shut up. Just like in Jesus' day today, though, I know that when there's a a crowd, there's different responses to him. Some people ridicule him. Some people reject him. Some people put it off, say, I'm going to live my life how I want to live it. And then on my deathbed, I'll receive Jesus in faith. Friends, that's not faith. I am convinced there are some of you in this room right now, not because of anything I'm saying, but because the Lord is present with us in his spirit, that you want to come to him in faith. You want to receive this invitation. You know you've been going your own way. And he's calling you to a different way, a way of life, a way of abundance, a way of hope, a way that you can now look death in the face and say, shut up. You have no hold over me anymore. And if that's you, I'm going to invite you to bow your head right now. I'll invite all of us. We're going to pray to this God who came in the flesh. Lord, you have risen. You have risen indeed. And because that is true, we can have hope. There is no hope apart from you. We acknowledge that maybe today for the one millionth time and maybe today for the first time. We want to get on our knees right now. Just like the disciples. And if there's anyone in this room ready to do this, Pray with me. Lord Jesus, I see you for who you really are now. You are God and you are worthy of my praise. You are the Lord of the storm and you stepped into it for me. I'm tired of going my own way. I'm tired of walking this path that leads to nothing, emptiness, and ultimately death. And I turn to you I turn to the cross. I turn to your resurrection. I get down on my knees and I declare, my Lord and my God. If that's you right now, hear the good news. The old creation is gone. The new creation has come. 
Your sin is forgiven. And you can say to death, shut up and stay shut up. Jesus, we rejoice in this good news today. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thanks for joining us today. If you'd like more information, visit cherryhillsfamily.org or find us on Facebook. 